Ephesians 4, that's in the epistle part of your Bible. Kind of in the middle of your New Testament. First Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> We'll go past all those prison epistles. We'll go past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We'll come to 1 Thessalonians. Today we'll be in chapter 4. Today we're looking at a very important topic called purity. Before we get into that, we really need to define what we're talking about by the word purity. Purity, uh, this, this Greek word we're thinking of here, just means cleanness. You are clean. What does that look like? Well, that, that looks like someone who loves God so much that they refrain from immorality in at least three ways. Okay, so, so don't just think of it in your actions, but it includes your actions, but it also includes your words and your thoughts. So you are pure in your words, your thoughts, and actions. So that means that if you are unmarried today or single, it means you're going to wait to engage in sexual activity until you're married. It means that you're going to save yourself for that one that you're going to marry one day. If you marry, if that is God's will for your life, you're going to save yourself for that individual. If you are married today, purity means that you are fully devoted to the one whom God has given you, your spouse, and you're fully devoted to that person and only that person, only your spouse. Now here's the problem, my friends. God says we're all sinners, so none of us can sit here and put ourselves on some, some platform where we are somehow untouchable and unreachable here. The reality is we're all sexually broken. We're all sexually broken, and some people have a hard time believing that, because a lot of times when you say, well, you're sexually broken, people think, well, that's just referring to symptoms. You know, that, that's referring to somebody who's a pornography user or somebody who has same-sex attraction or, you know, that's someone who has all these triggers from their past because of all the sexual trauma they've experienced. No. In fact, I just recently read a book by Dr. Julie Slattery, and she said this, quote, Sexual brokenness is not simply the presence of symptoms. It is anything that keeps us from experiencing sexuality as the gift and metaphor of covenant love. For example, the woman who thinks of sex as dirty and shameful and the man who views women as objects to possess are both sexually broken. End quote. So you understand, it's not just symptoms. Just think of it that way. Uh, clearly, this is, this is a problem in our, in our society and in our culture. And so since sexual brokenness and impurity is a problem, what are we going to do about it? It needs to be fixed. How is, how is it going to be fixed? Well, 
The only way it can be fixed is go to the one who made you, your creator, the maker of all of us. He's the only one who can fix us. So we need God's wisdom today. Unfortunately, we have God's wisdom in his word. And this is a beautiful passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4. So let's read it together. I'll read it. You follow along in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do, know not, who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gave His Holy Spirit to you. So there are several truths we'll just take from this text. Number one, we see that purity is commanded by God. This purity, this cleanness, this holiness is commanded by God. Now, why is that? Well, often in Scripture, you, God commands us to do stuff because that's who He is. God is a pure God. God is a holy God, and so therefore we are to be like Him. And so we see purity is commanded by God. And by the way, you don't have to wonder what God's will is in this situation, do you? I know what God's will is for every one of you, because it's right here in the Scripture. And God says, first of all, that God's will is your sanctification. You understand what that means? Sanctification means it's it's a two-part process, okay? It's where God set you apart from your sin, that's not enough. You have, to, you have to be set apart to Him. You have to be set apart to Him. That's what sanctification is. It's this process where you are being conformed into the image of Christ. Set apart from your sin and set apart to God. Now here's how that might look. Just, I'm going to pick, a, pick on pornography a little bit today. Remember, it is only a symptom, but... Of, it's a symptom of greater things going on in our hearts, but it's, it's a huge industry in our world today we need to think about. For example, let's say, let's say I was uh, addicted to pornography. <clears throat> what do I need to do to be sanctified? Well, I need to confess my sin of being a pornography user. I need to forsake that sin, admit it to God and anybody else might be affected my wife or whoever else, my family, church family, so forth. But that's not enough. See, I, I need to forsake that, confess that sin, but then I need to set myself apart unto God. See, I need to find a, a superior pleasure, something that is a greater pleasure than my sin. And there's plenty of things that's superior to pornography. But that's, that's what you would do. It might include uh, some radical amputation in your life. It might include uh, uh, some accountability. It might include, okay, 
I need to get into the scriptures more, meditating upon the word of God so my mind is being renewed so that I can see the superior pleasures. That's how that might look. God's will, number two, also for us is that, particularly here, it mentions to abstain from sexual immorality. That's what verse 3 says, sexual immorality. This was a problem in this, this culture. For example, I read uh, the temple of Aphrodite had uh, at least 1,000 prostitutes. And this was normal in this culture. It, you, it was a part of your worship that you had to go and be with these prostitutes. That was normal. Immor- sexual immorality is normal in that culture. You say, well, what does that mean to then abstain from sexual immorality? Well, abstain means you're, it's complete abstinence. In, in this case, by the way, it means staying completely away from any thought or behavior that violates God's word. It's sad that we have to define sexual immorality, so let me do it for you. Uh, sexual immorality has to do with any form of illicit sexual behavior. It's any sexual activity that's deviating from the exclusive relationship that should happen between a husband and a wife. So that would include things like pornography. It would include uh, the hookup culture that is prominent in our universities and schools. Uh, I just finished reading another book not uh, last, last week. Uh, practical guide to culture, and they were saying our hookup culture is something about, this is just the ones reported, about 80% of young people in university are involved in the hookup culture. That's the ones that were reported. So it's a massive problem. Along along with that is masturbation, uh, the, the partner that goes on and on in our culture where people have partners refuse to... to, to uh, Covenant with one another in marriage? That's sexual immorality with all these people in our culture who have partners and who refuse to get married. And God says, abstain from that sexual immorality. But why should we do this? Why should we obey God's command here? Let me give you one good reason in the text, 1 Thessalonians 4. God says that purity pleases Him. Purity is pleasing to God. Remember, He is a pure God. He's a holy God. So uh, the Bible says he's not going to allow impurity into his heaven. That's what he thinks about this. Verse 1 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Do it more and more. Purity is cleanness. How you live your life and your thoughts, your words, and your actions is pleasing to God. That's reason enough for us to obey His commands. Remember what Jesus said? If you love Him, what are you going to do? If you love Jesus, you're going to keep His commandments. And number three, we just coming outside this text a little bit here. Let's think about this for a moment. Purity was planned by God. Purity was planned by God. See, some Christians, they give the impression sometimes that sex is dirty and evil. 
And some, people, some parents even tell their kids, well, don't, don't do this because it's, it's dirty, it's evil. Well, nothing actually could be further from the truth. That's, that's, that is simply not the truth. Look, look what God said from the beginning. And Jesus, by the way, quotes this. You read the uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He quotes these verses. And Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Notice God makes them male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So this was God's plan from the beginning, for, in an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman for life. So God designed men and women's bodies, perfectly designed, and he, then he commands them to have this intimate sexual relationship. But the problem is, Satan comes along, Satan takes God's beautiful creation, and he, he's deceiving people, he's lying. Uh, he, he takes, let's just take sex for example, he takes sex and says, oh, it's not important, it's not important, just go have as much as you want with whomever you want, wherever you want, as much as you want, and that's basically the hookup culture. Well, that's a lie. So he's taking God's beautiful creation and he's distorted and corrupted it. And then sometimes Satan lies by saying, well, that's the ultimate thing. You know, there's nothing greater than this. Well, that's another lie of Satan. And so you see what Satan's doing? He's taking God's good things that he has made and then Satan twists them into evil things. The Bible says sex and marriage is actually beautiful. It's something that's guilt-free, but it's only within the context of marriage. Look what Hebrews 13 verse 4 says. God says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So in that context there, the marriage bed is referring to the sexual union between a husband and a wife. God says that's, that's something honorable. That's a good thing but only within that context. So it's planned by God, but let's think about some reasons. Why did God create sex? He's the one who made it. He's the one who designed it. He's given it to us. Why did he do that? Three reasons. Number one, the bonding of the married couple. He's done it for the bonding of the married couple. Look at Genesis 2.24 here on the screen. It says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. By the way, I hope you understand the one flesh union there is, is more than just the sexual union. Uh, it, it's, it's more than that. But anyway, hopefully, you, I hope you understand that. It, it's referring to the emotional, spiritual, uh, and the intellectual union that should be happening between a married couple. But sex is, is one way that married couples can learn to become a unit. It's, it's part of that physical union. It's a physical picture of the way that marriage then permanently joins two people together. They should be brought together spiritually, emotionally, physically, and intellectually. And the second reason God created sex is for birthing of children. We just read there in Genesis 1.28 that God tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go have babies. That's one reason God created 
sex. It's designed to have children. So a child, by the way, should be the result of a parent's love. Should be a part of this covenant relationship. And that's, by the way, that's what makes children who are born uh, from unmarried parents such a terrible thing. It's a pitiful thing because the parents don't love each other enough to make the commitment to each other. Sad. That's very common in our society, isn't it? And the third reason God created this is for the blessing of the married couple. Do you believe God is good? See, how you view God is going to determine your view of purity and immorality. If you believe God is good, then you're, you're going to recognize, well, yeah, yes, God, God cares about even my enjoyment. And that's the third reason for sex. It's meant to be enjoyable. God wants married people to do this. In fact, you read in Proverbs 5 and 6, in that whole context of God warning against adultery, there, here's what God says in Proverbs 5.18. He says, Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, and be intoxicated always in her love. That's the, the blessing of the marriage relationship. God is good, and He gives that to us. So God made sex to feel good. He, he made it to be enjoyable within the bounds of marriage. And In fact, uh, did you know God actually gave us an entire book of the Bible that talks about this? Study the Song of Solomon. Study the Song of Solomon. God gave you that, that book that describes the intimacy of the marriage relationship and, and how they, they built up to marriage. God also puts restrictions on sex. There's some, some things that control sex. And God has, has uh, talked about some of these things, which we'll mention in a moment. But let me just use an illustration so you can understand what's going on here. I want to illustrate it by fire. See, sex is kind of like fire. Did you know fire can be a, a good thing and a bad thing, depending on what, what happens, Right? If fire's uncontrolled, it can be destructive and even deadly. For example, what happens with fire? Right? Uncontrolled fire. What, what can happen? Well, it can start a forest fire. It can burn someone's house down. It can burn your food. Right? You're not watching the barbecue or you got to turn your barbecue turned up too much. Right? You have burnt chicken or whatever. And sometimes fire even kills people. Now, what are some ways that fire can be good? It's not always bad. What if you're cold? Can fire help you out? Give you some warmth and heat? Yeah. Sometimes even save people's lives. It gives heat. You, you sometimes use fire to cook food. And sometimes people even use fire to purify gold. Those are just a few things I've thought of. So, if you take that analogy of fire and recognize fire, uh, sex is very much like fire. Used properly, it can be beneficial. Used improperly, it can actually cause great damage. So think of that. Just as you put restrictions on fire, you know, those of you who had wood burning stoves in your house, what are you doing? You're putting a restriction on your fire. 
you're restricting that fire, making it, keeping it from burning your house down to making it something useful. It's actually something beneficial. It's a good thing, right? Stay as long as it stays within the fireplace. It's useful, good thing, beneficial, right? God has, because he's a good God, he, he takes his beautiful creation and he puts restrictions on that. So it doesn't get out of control and become deadly and destructive. So what are these restrictions? Let's just think about a few here. Number one is our thinking. God cares about your thinking. Jesus cares about our thinking. Look at this context here. Uh, Matthew 5, 28, here's what Jesus said. He he lifts the bar. He, He just doesn't talk about what we do. He talks about what we think when he says, But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is one reason we're all sexually broken. We we lust in our minds, in our thoughts. Yes, you can lust in your mind. And so what is God doing here? God's forbidding lustful thoughts for something that is wrong for us to have at that moment, at least. You say, well, what is lust? Lust, by the way, is just a strong desire for something. It involves thinking about letting your mind dwell on something. See, we shouldn't desire someone sexually until we are married to this person, this individual. And and it should be restricted only to our spouse. And there's things that Satan uses... Right? The Bible, 1 John 2, talks about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Satan uses those things. Our three great enemies, Satan, your, your sin nature or your flesh in the world. Satan's using those things. Specific things that might be used to, to tempt us to lust. Pornography is only one of them. Pornography is a major issue you need to be aware of. If you're living in a bubble, you need to to know that uh, basically every every guy has seen it at some point in his life. All you have to do is walk in the mall and you'll see pornography. It's everywhere these days. I've, I've seen it times I'm not looking for it. Um, walk into the toilet at the mechanic. And, you know, it's times I'm not expecting it. So I, I need to make up my mind ahead of time. What am I going to do when I see that pornography, am I going to lust or am I going to defeat that temptation? Not, not a sin to be tempted, but what do you do with temptation when you experience it? It's going to determine if it becomes sin. Satan can use the television to tempt us to lust. He can use movies to tempt us to lust. He can use pornographic music to tempt us to lust. Uh, even, you know, not just rock music, but even in the rap and the country, the pop music, you'll find pornographic music and words that tempt you to lust. And some, the, the danger of music, by the way, is it, it's almost like a subconscious thing. And I found myself, I even had to quit a job one time because even though I was trying to block out the music coming from the speakers up from the ceiling, I found myself one morning, the, the day I quit, the job. It was the day I was sitting having my morning devotions before work, and I'm singing the songs I thought I was ignoring. Like, whoa! 
I'm trying to read the Bible, and, and, and these evil thoughts are coming into my mind and tempting me. That's the power of music. Ladies, you need to be careful how you dress. You can cause a man to think lustful thoughts just by the way you dress. Uh, there's books that can cause you to lust. Not just Fifty Shades of Grey, by the way. There's plenty of other things out there that, that will cause you to lust. And so, God cares about your thinking. Right? Guard your thoughts. Guard your heart. It's Out of your heart is going to come all the issues of life. Guard it. The second restriction, kind of like a fireplace, is, is a restriction on the fire is our thinking. Or a, but number two is our talking are talking. In the context of Proverbs 5 and 6, telling us about the immoral woman here, God says here in chapter 6, verse 24, hey, preserve yourself from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So what does the prostitute in this context here use to tempt this man? What's the, what's the prostitute using to tempt the man? It's her words. She's flattering this man. You can read it. Go on and read the whole context. You'll see how she's, she's flattering him. She's flirting with him. And the longer she's flattering him and flirting with him, the more danger he is in. He's being, he's being drawn into the net. He's being captured. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do your words minister grace to those who hear your words? Or is it a corrupting talk? Is it, is it, is it attacking them, if you will? God wants our words to build up other people not take them down. And this particular text here is forbidding a corrupt and unwholesome talk. For example, here's how that might look. You, you have to be careful how you talk with someone of the opposite sex in, in, in regard to sex. Right? If you're not married, you're, you're taking down these restrictive walls if you go and talk to someone of the opposite sex about sex. See, sex should be discussed with your parents. Sex should be talked, you should talk about it with your fiancé, with your pastor maybe, even before marriage, but that's, that's the only time it should be talked about. So talking about sex is kind of like going and lighting a fire and not having restrictions on that fire. It's very easy for it to get out of control and become something big, ugly, and dangerous. The third restriction is our touching. See, the Bible doesn't specifically mention touching in this context, but it includes touching here in Romans 13, 14, when it says, you're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the positive, but the negative is, make no provision for the flesh to gratify the desires. So don't, don't, don't make provision for your sin nature, your flesh. One of those ways you can do that is through your touching. You've got to be careful how you touch people. You don't want to touch somebody in such a way that can actually arouse their sexual desires, unless it's your spouse. Now, why is this? Because 
once this happens, it's, it, it can be something that's very hard to stop. Be careful, that's a restriction. God designed this uh, touching can be a very intimate thing for married couples, a good thing within the bounds of marriage, but outside it, it can be a dangerous thing. And some people ask, well, how far is too far? How much touching can I do? How much talking and and so forth? Uh, Well, it's interesting in the Song of Solomon, the young bride there in the Song of Solomon actually cautions against arousing someone before you're married. And and, and the Bible says in in chapter 2, verse 7, I adjure you that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't, don't awaken something that is meant for marriage before the appropriate time. You say, well, how far is too far? Well, once you've gotten yourself or some friend of yours aroused in this kind of a way, you've actually gone too far and now you've sinned. It's interesting in our text here today in 1 Thessalonians 4, it talks about controlling your body. Controlling your whole body. Don't don't be like the Gentiles who don't know God. Verse 6 says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't don't arouse something before the, the appropriate time. Don't transgress. Don't defraud your brother or your sister. So avoid situations and activities that might lead to that. See, God doesn't put these restrictions to keep us from having fun. (laughs) I used to think that way. I had a wrong view of God, frankly. If you think God is some killjoy who's wanting to destroy all fun in your life, and wants to keep you from having enjoyment, that's not an accurate view of God. You have a false God. See, he's he's not trying to destroy your life. He's trying to help you. These restrictions he he puts on sex is there to protect you in at least three ways. See, God doesn't want you to have guilt. He doesn't want you to have disease, and he doesn't want you to be damaged. See, these his creation outside of the of the bounds of marriage can can have all three of those. Did you notice here in verse 6, he, the Bible talks about no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. See, my friends, here's the fourth truth you need to understand that impurity has consequences. Serious consequences. Uh, that verse there gives a very strong warning about taking advantage of another person. Uh, particularly, it's talking about sexual immorality. Don't, don't take advantage of someone in regard to morality. See, if you do, what does God say? God says that He's going to be the one who's going to come and penalize the violator of His command. By the way, since God never forgets anything, He knows all things, that means the immoral person here is sure to receive His punishment. What are some of His punishments? Well, Let's look at some scriptures here quickly. Number one, we see that impurity brings destruction. Impurity brings destruction in the context of the adulterous, immoral woman. Proverbs 6.32 says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. You're, you're 
in that context, it talks about this person like being led to the slaughter. You're like that animal who's gone to the slaughterhouse and he's going to die. You will be destroyed. Number two, impurity brings dishonor. The next verse, verse 33, says, He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. You come outside of God's design for your life, you can expect dishonor. You say, well, who are, and what is dishonored as a result of immorality? I mean, our, this world tells us this is a normal thing. Sometimes even good things, right? Well, read your Bible, you'll see, number one, God is dishonored. David recognized, hey, I dishonored God with my sin. Uh, Marriage is dishonored because Hebrews 13 tells us the marriage bed is an honorable thing. Uh, The person to whom you are immoral is dishonored. You're not actually loving the person when you do this, and you've dishonored yourself, it says. It's at least those four. And then number three, impurity brings distrust. It brings distrust. Proverbs 25, 19. Look look at this analogy here. It says, trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. Have you ever had a bad tooth? You go to the dentist, your, your tooth hurts. Maybe you have a cavity or you got something going on in the roots there and you got a lot of pain. Maybe your tooth is wiggly or whatever it might be, okay? Maybe you've chipped your tooth. I've done that before, and now I have a tooth because it's been chipped. I can't trust it anymore. I can't trust it anymore. It's not as strong as it used to be. Uh, maybe maybe some of you might find yourself a little clumsy at times, and you're, you're like the foot that slips. And, and you walk around, and you're like, am I going to fall? You, you never know when you're going to fall. You slip on something and hurt yourself. Well, you know what, what it's saying here? If you, if you lose your purity, you lose the trust of everybody that knows you. You can't be trusted. You're like that bad tooth or your foot that slips. And so we, we can expect people to be suspicious then of our character. Don't expect people to trust you with a job. Don't, don't expect people to trust you with a responsibility. In fact, we, you should expect to be treated like a, an irresponsible child. If we're like this, uh, we should expect to have privileges denied because I hope you understand privilege comes to those who are responsible. You have to prove yourself to be responsible to gain those privileges. I mean, for example, if uh, if my wife reads my internet history and she's allowed to do that, she reads my internet history and if she saw I'm looking at pornographic websites. Should should she trust me? No. In fact, I would I would expect my computer would go from my study and probably sit right next to hers on the desk. And so then I lose my password and I would assume and, and so then she's she would have helped me be accountable, right? I would expect that to happen. We should all expect that sort of thing to happen. Losing privileges because privilege only comes with responsibility. Number four, impurity brings dissatisfaction. Here's what Solomon said. Solomon had all these pleasures of life. I mean, read Ecclesiastes, but here in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, 
And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Imagine, any of you ever tried to run around the paddock chasing wind? I mean, you feel it, but you can't see it. You can see what it does. It's, that's, a, that's a foolish exercise, right? It, 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 that's the way it is. Doing stuff on this earth under the sun without God is just vanity and emptiness. Purity brings maybe momentary gratification, uh, gratification sorry, but it quickly disappears. It, it just leaves a person with a greater lust. That's what it does. It's kind of like a drug addict. The drug addict always needs more to satisfy their addiction. Some people are pleasure addicts. They got to go jump off another bridge. You know, they got to jump out of another airplane. They got to go right. Do you, you get the point? Right? Climb another mountain, whatever it might be. They never, never satisfied. And so, sexual satisfaction can only be found within the way God designed it, which, of course, is marriage. And it's interesting in Second Samuel, there's a guy there by the name of Amnon who actually rapes his half-sister, and you and some people think, well, now he's going to be satisfied, because he was dissatisfied before, right? He rapes her, he should be satisfied now, right? No. Read Second Samuel 13. He wasn't. He wasn't, because it doesn't satisfy. And number five, impurity brings depression. It brings depression. You want to know why so many young people are committing suicide? You want to know why New Zealand is way up at the top of the list of suicide? Part of that's because of our hookup culture, pornography, and all the other stuff going on. Read Psalm 38. Uh, I don't have time to read the whole chapter, but go back and read that sometime, maybe today, and you'll find there's all kinds of emotional and spiritual effects that, that David's sin had upon him. Here's just some of the ones I've noticed from Psalm 38. Uh, the Bible says that conviction was heavy upon him. He had heavy guilt. He had uh, constant crying. He was groaning in anguish. He was sighing. He had heartache. He had loss of strength. He was lonely. And he had emotional pain. That is a depressed person. That is a description of a depressed person. That's what sin does. And by the way, that, think of that as a gift of God to bring you to repentance. <laughs> you shouldn't enjoy being out of fellowship with Him. And number six, impurity brings disease. Again, look at Psalm 38. Uh, you'll see that sin even affects your physical body. Uh, some of the, the consequences of our sin is disease. Not the only one, but some of them. For example, did you know there's at least 20 different types of sexually transmitted diseases, at least. In fact, uh, there's one of them you can die from, at least one, you can die from it. Uh, I've, I've read that AIDS has a 100% rate of fatality. A lot of birth defects happen as a result of the STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. They can also cause uh, people from having children. Uh, it can cause rashes, warts, increase of your chance of dying from cancer? Why is that happening? <laughs> Did you notice that doesn't happen with those who are married in a monogamous, heterosexual relationship? 
In other words, you have one man, one woman for life. They, they, don't, they don't have the diseases. It's part of the consequences of our sin. So you say, we're all sexually broken. We're all sinners. This is a serious issue. What if I'm one of these people, what you are, you're impure. None of us are exactly like God, are we? So what do we do? What if, what if I've committed adultery? What if I'm a porno, pornography user? What if I you know, have same-sex attraction? What if, you know, whatever it is, okay? Well, my friends, there is hope for you, okay? Whatever your sin is, there's always hope for you, okay? We see here, not in this particular text, but the Bible tells us impurity is something that can be cleansed. See, there's no sin that can't be cleansed. There, you can't sin enough out to go outside of God's grace. There is no sin so big that God can't forgive it, except your unbelief. If you reject Jesus Christ, then you'll suffer for eternity for that rejection. But hopefully, hopefully, the church is a safe place for a sinner to find help. Hopefully. You're a sinner. Do you understand what it means to be a sinner? Do you understand that you're the greatest sinner you know, that you know, then you'll have grace to someone to another sinner. So when I've when I've had people come and confess their various sins to me and say, help me, I don't beat them up. Hopefully I'm showing grace. Say, hey brother, you know, I, I lust like you do, or whatever it is, okay? I got the same issues you do. Now what do we do with that? There's solutions. There's hope. Well, the Bible gives at least a three-step plan to be cleansed from our moral impurity. Number one, quickly, just run through these. Number one, you need to admit your sin. You need to recognize, I'm a sinner. I'm sexually broken. Start there. We're all in the same boat here. See, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, there's hope. There's hope if you do this, because God is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That forgiveness and that hope only comes, though, notice the qualification, only to those who confess their sin. So the first step in being cleansed for immorality is you have to admit that you have sinned. And as we saw in Quieting a Noisy Soul, how providential that the word confess means you, you're saying the same thing. Saying the same thing. In other words... You have to agree with God and how He views your sin. It's not just a mistake or, you know, a little, you know, the things that we say. No, it's, <clears throat> we have broken God's law. So it doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what Satan says, <laughs> right? It doesn't matter if our government makes sin legal. It's still wrong, right? It's still sin. And so if God says your behavior is sin, if God says your thoughts are sin, then you have to agree with God and confess and get forgiveness. Number two, after you admit your sin, then you need to abandon your sin. Abandon your sin. Look what Proverbs 28, 13 says. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. What a contrast. What a contrast. Do you want God or not? That's what it comes down to. 
who are you going to worship? There's only two choices on the shelf, right? Pleasing God and pleasing self. That's it. So cleansing from sin can only happen here if you admit your sin and then abandon it. So, for example, if you plan to go sin again, be immoral, God's not going to cleanse you. You know, if I confess my sin of lust, for example, and then I go, you know, I do that, and then I go over to the computer and type in pornography, what have I just done? God's not going to, he's not going to deal with my sin when I've intended the whole time, oh, I'll deal with that, and then I'm going to go sin again, and then I'll get, confess my sin and go sin again, and then confess, you know, if, if that's my lifestyle, God's not going to confess that, or forsake, forgive. To abandon sin is to walk away from it and never to, to, to intend to return to it again. So you have to separate yourself from the source of that sin. Stop doing it. Right? That, that might look like radical amputation for some of you. We talked about that in Quieting a Noisy Soul. See, when Jesus said, pluck out your eyeballs and cut off your hand, he didn't mean do that literally. <laughs> you understand he meant that figuratively? You know why? Because if you pluck your eyeballs out, can you still lust? Yeah. Yep. You can pluck your eyeballs out, and guess what? Your thoughts can still lust. You can have immoral thoughts going on in your brain without your eyeballs. It's possible. So don't allow yourself to be tempted to go back to that sin. Don't make provision for your sin nature, your flesh. For example... Pretend you're counseling somebody. Somebody comes to you. Here's a situation. For example, let's say Jill's problem is the romance novels she reads. And her mother buys these romance novels for her, and they've been causing impure thoughts in her mind. How can she stop making provision for her flesh? I hope you know how to help this individual. Right? She needs to understand the principle of replacement, number one. Her mother shouldn't be giving her these romance novels to start with. But anyway, that's, uh, that, that's another issue. But uh, you abandon the sin, but it needs to be replaced in like kind. So yes, when you put something off, let's say, let's say romance novels, and this person likes reading, it wouldn't be wise to say, don't read any more books. No, when you replace, replace it with good books. Of course, she needs to be reading her Bible. She needs to help. Uh, read other books that helps her understand her Bible. Let me use another example. Let's say Kurt likes to watch pornography on his smartphone. His family doesn't spend much time at home, and he has no friends. And so he's given into, uh, into these temptations many times, and he's confessed his sin, but Kurt doesn't know how to stop. What can Kurt do to stop making provision for the flesh? Kurt also needs to understand this principle of replacement. He needs to get some friends. He needs some accountability. His parents need to help him. He shouldn't be left alone. He might need to get rid of his smartphone to start with. Right? There, there's some issues, lots of issues going on there, okay? But just getting rid of his smartphone is not going to fix the sin issue going on in his heart. You understand that, right? There needs to be a lot more going on there. And these are just some of the examples that that we could talk about. But number three, here's an important one. See, you don't just abandon something. You don't just forsake something. Remember, you defeat sin with superior pleasure. 
defeat sin with superior pleasure. You find yourself in a, in a place where you're tempted. How are you going to deal with that temptation? How are you going to defeat the temptation? Whatever it is, if you don't have something greater than that temptation, you will probably succumb to the temptation. You need something greater than that sin. See, in Hebrews 11, it says that sin is, is pleasurable, but only for fleeting moments only it's temporary. So what are you going to do? If you don't have something that's a greater pleasure, a superior pleasure, you will succumb. Find that superior pleasure. Uh, moments of temptation in my life, I can think of some examples. Fortunately, the, some of the moments I'm thinking of, I was in fellowship with God, and so God was greater than the temptation. Uh, I thought of Christ. I thought of my family, my wife, my children. I thought, you know, these quick moments of temptation, you, like, if I do this, I'm going to destroy my wife, my kids, my, my ministry. There's a lot of things. There is something far greater here. I'm going to destroy my fellowship with God. That was a superior pleasure I was thinking of at those moments. You need to find that superior pleasure. But you also need a commitment. See, purity requires commitments. Look what verse 7 says in our text. It says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. You have a calling. This is a calling from God. Are you committed to His calling in your life? Are you committed to holiness, to purity? Notice God has summoned each Christian here to live this life of dedication to Him. You're to be reserved for God's use. And this means Christians give up their desires to embrace God's desires. Because look what verse 8 says. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. So this comes from who? It comes from God. And so the Bible reminds us here where this command, where the rule, where this standard comes from. It comes from God. So guess what? Moral purity is something that needs to be decided before a situation arises. You need to know what you're going to do before you're tempted. To remain pure, you must decide before that temptation attacks you. I love the example of, of talk about making a decision. I love the example of Daniel. Daniel's been taken from his homeland. He's not with his parents. He doesn't have all that accountability. He's in a foreign land. He's over in Babylon. And he's got all this peer pressure. He's got the pressure of the king trying to get him to drink his wine and eat his food. And Daniel's already decided ahead of time what is the right thing to do. It doesn't matter if I'm the only one. And he says, the Bible says in Daniel 1, Daniel resolved to not defile himself. I don't care if I die. I don't care if I'm the only one. I am resolved. He made a decision ahead of time what was the right thing to do. So a decision is is something that's firm. It's an unchanging purpose. In other words, you're you're setting a course. You're not going to waver from that course no matter what. By the way, this commitment requires you to say no to things, to your temptations, and and you're saying yes to God. It's a commitment to God, to yourself, to your family, to, if you're single, maybe to your future spouse even, to your current spouse, to your children, to your grandchildren, to your church family. You're saying yes to all of them. 
A decision is to be pure shows the high value you put on all of those people. Make a decision. Number two, discipline yourself. Discipline yourself. Those words in verses 3 and 4 in our text, abstain, control, those are commands. Requires self-discipline. Of course, God enables you to do this, but uh, abstain means you're, you're holding yourself from something. It means you're avoiding something. That might look like some self-denial. Control means you're, you're gaining the mastery over something. In this case, it's your body. You're keeping your body under discipline. It's like a, an athlete. Athletes discipline their bodies. An athlete who goes to the Olympics is not eating a McDonald's all the time or getting fish and chips from the takeaways and sitting on the couch all the time. No, they're incredibly disciplined. It might require a lot of blood, sweat, and sometimes tears. Very disciplined. And that's the way it is for should be for the Christian life. In order for you to remain pure, you must discipline your body. You have to bring your mind and your body into subjection to Christ. By the way, God's given you three tools for self-discipline. Quickly think about these. Number one, when you are tempted, and it's going to happen, you will be tempted in this world, what are you going to do? Sometimes you need to remove yourself physically from that place of temptation. Do what Joseph does in Genesis 39. When Potiphar's wife comes and she's flirting and flattering and trying to get him to commit sexual immorality, Joseph doesn't stick around. He flees. He gets his body out of the situation. Sometimes you need to do that. What if you can't? What if you actually can't leave that place of temptation? Well, then you do what Jesus does in Matthew 4. You fight it. You fight it with Scripture. Memorize Bible verses on purity and other things like that. When Jesus was out in the wilderness for 40 days, did you know he defeated Satan by quoting Deuteronomy? How well do you know Deuteronomy? Could you defeat Satan with Deuteronomy? <laughs> I don't think I could either, but I don't know it that well. Number three, limit your thoughts to pure thoughts as much as possible. Limit them to pure thoughts. See, this is going to help keep that temptation from having this loud voice in your head. Did you know prevention is one of the best medicines? It's one of the best medicines, prevention. See, if you can gain control of your thoughts, and you, you, that's the starting point of the battle. That's the starting point of the battle. So you gain control of your thoughts, you're renewing your mind with Scripture, then, then your glass is full. There's no room There's no room in there for Satan really to attack. And number three, the third thing you need to do is renew this commitment daily. Don't just say, hey, I made this decision, you know, like a long time ago when I went to, you know, that Christian camp or whatever. No, that, that's, that's not good enough. You've got to be committed to this daily. Look what Luke 9.23, Jesus said this. He said it to all. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a daily exercise. When you get up in the morning, are you doing what Ephesians 6 says? Putting on the armor of God? You say, okay, God, I'm yours. Protect me. 
I need your gospel. I need your salvation. I need you. I can't do this without you. I'm walking out. There's, there's temptations out there. Satan's going to throw his fiery darts at me. He's going to try to hit me with his arrows. Protect me today. Take up your cross here, by the way. It means you're renouncing all your selfish ambitions. You are dying to your way of life. That might sound like a really bad deal to you. If it does sound like a bad deal, you don't know who Jesus is then. See, what do you gain when you do this? Well, you get to gain Christ. You get to be a follower of Christ. By the way, if you look at the next two verses, look at this. It says this. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What are you trying to gain, my friends? What are you trying to gain? Don't try to save your life. That's a losing battle. (laughs) Don't, Don't try to say, I'm going to do things my way. You're going to lose it. Your eternal destiny is on the line here, my friends. Read 1 Corinthians 6, because one of the things mentioned there, how do you get into the kingdom of heaven? One of the things keeps people out of the kingdom of heaven is sexual immorality. If this is a habitual way of life for someone, God says, I won't let them in. That's how serious of a matter this is. A lot of people are trying to save themselves and are losing in the process. So I ask you this question, my friends. This requires a daily commitment. Are you committing to this? Have you done this? And are you doing this daily? Committing yourself to Christ that that I will be pure, I will be clean today, tomorrow, and the rest of my life. That needs to be your commitment. Because you want to please God. Will you do that? Say, I'm going to do that today. For the rest of my life. That's your choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scriptures that are so clear. Guide us to help us to know who you are, what your will is for our lives. We're thankful that we know your will is our sanctification. Part of that is that we abstain from sexual immorality. May we understand your good gift. You designed it, you made it, you created it. May we understand Satan's deceitful ways and lies and how he takes your beautiful creation and corrupts it and twists it, the evil. May we not fall for his deceit and his lies. May we know the truth, may it set us free. May we know you, that you're a good God and you you know what's best and you love us so much, you, you want us to have what is good. May we understand what, that your will is good, it is best for us. May we know you so well that we firmly believe that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.